Hey everybody, welcome to the Musea Podcast. This is episode number 36 and I'm Michael Howard, the founder and CEO of Musea. Real quick, I want to uh, obviously give um, my thoughts and prayers out to everybody up in the northeast that was uh, affected by Hurricane Sandy. Um, obviously, there's I have you know know some photographers up there and uh, I'm actually shooting a wedding up there in a few weeks, and so um, everything has just been uh, really kind of hard to watch on TV. And so, uh, just if you're up there, just know that uh, we're thinking about you. Um, in relation to New York City, uh, I'm actually going to be up there on November 30th, uh, and I will be doing a little talk about Musea and the future of digital culture and technology and where Musea fits in that. Um, and that's going to be at Spencer Lum's studio uh, on Friday night, November 30th. So if you're up in New York City, New Jersey, or somewhere in that area, or just want to do a road trip and come down and learn more about Musea, that would be great. I would love to meet you there. Uh, you can RSVP or get more details by going to um, Musea's Facebook page and just click on Events, and you can uh, read everything there. Uh, also, this week... Um, we announced uh, some new ticket options with the Musea Gathering, which I'm really excited about. Um, the Previously, all the tickets were $750, which there's, that ticket is still available. But we've uh, added two new options. One option is for um, photographers that use the Musea store as their online proofing system and have sold work through the Musea store. Uh, you can go to any gatherings for only $500. So you automatically get a discount for supporting Musea. Um, through uh, using our online proofing system. Uh, also, if I've had a couple of people ask me about going to both of the gatherings, because there's one in New York City and one in Seattle. If you want to go to both, you can go ahead and buy a, a third ticket, which actually um, anybody can buy. You don't have to be a museum photographer, but it's for $1,000, so basically it's $500 per event. So that's six days of education for $1,000, which is a really good deal, especially considering who we have teaching um, at all the events. So uh, I would just, you know, if you're interested in going to the gathering, uh, just check it out. You can just go to museagathering.com. All the ticket prices are there. All the information is there um, about the speakers and uh, the schedule and things like that. Um, regarding the Musea store, we've got a few things with that. Uh, we've obviously just released the favorite system a week or two ago, which everybody is loving so far, which I'm so thankful for. Uh, we put a ton of work into that, and I'm glad that that is a su success. Uh, we are also getting ready to launch um, Musea Archive. It's pretty much done. We just got to put some finishing touches on it over the next uh, couple weeks and get that pushed out. And so people will be able to archive their high-res JPEGs with us, uh, and it will be um, a monthly fee per gigabyte based on uh, how much you use. We're still working all that out, but it's coming very soon. So be on the lookout for that uh, on the blog, and I'll be shooting out an email. Um, and then once that's done, we are going to start working on connecting to a lab. So I know a ton of you have been waiting for a lab before you even use the Musea store. So uh, after that, we're going to start, uh, after the archive launches, we're going to start connecting to a lab. And the lab we're going to connect to is Richard Photo Lab, which we're extremely excited about. Uh, I love everything they stand for. They've been nothing but supportive of Musea. Um, they get how to run a business. They're extremely professional, organized, um, 
and just great overall people that work there. So uh, I'm excited to get that going. And so hopefully an early part of two, tw- yeah, 2013, then we'll be connected to a lab and that'll be off and running. Um, for this podcast, I had the chance to talk to Alex Boyd. He's a photographer over in the UK, but he shoots a lot in Scotland. And uh, in this podcast, Alex and I, um, we talk about the meaning uh, behind his sonnet series, which he's uh, most famous for. Um, We also talk about why he chooses to work in slow, adventurous ways, and also why he enjoys shooting wet plate collodion. So it's a great talk. Uh, If you love accents, you're going to love Alex's accent because he's got that Scottish accent. Um, But uh, we have a great talk about a number of different things, uh, just about his work in photography in general and just working slow and how that's beneficial to to him and, and I think to other people as well. So thank you so much for listening as always, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Alex, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. How are you doing? Fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Good. Um, first off, I always ask everybody like what their story is and how they got started in photography. Um, you know, when they first picked up a camera and all that. So I'd love to hear hear your story. Yeah. Um, I didn't really have any sort of formal photographic training. Um, I've sort of um, sort of learned by watching others really and sort of getting out there with a the camera. Um, my grandfather was quite into photography. Um, he and my father both used to always have, you know, 35 millimeter cameras with them and have a shot uh, of those and sort of trial and error and see how I got on with that. Um, I used to take a lot of long walks with my grandfather out in the landscape and sort of I think that's where the sort of interest came from, trying to capture um, what was around me with a camera. And um, that sort of coupled with um, when I went to secondary school in Scotland, uh, which is when you're about, I was about 16, 17, we had a dark room in our art class. And that's where I really learned the, the wonder and the marvel of uh, dark room printing and uh, trying to be Apple Adams at the age of 16, which didn't quite work out. <laughs> um, well, one of the reasons I definitely wanted to talk to you was. Uh, well, I found you originally through Deborah Parkin um, when I interviewed her a few months ago, um, and then I see you guys chatting on Twitter. But uh, obviously, uh, your series of work from the sonnets, uh, your sonnet series, is um, obviously very compelling. So I would love to kind of work through that body of work, um, and we can just start with like how 
how you got started in it and where the origin of all that came from? Uh, Sonic series really began um, not from a photographic series, but from a short film I was making, um, which sort of had its origins origins in about 2003 through to 2005, six. And um, I worked with um, the composer and pianist Mike Garson, who's worked with David Bowie for the last 30 years or so. Uh, he provided the score for that, and I made this short film um, about a character sort of uh, trying to uncover his roots and walking through the landscape. Uh, it wasn't a fantastic film, uh, sort of the kind of thing you make uh, when you're a pretentious art history student, as I was at that stage. <laughs> and um, but the thing with the film was um, in the last shot of the film, which where the character sort of strides out. Um, into a loch and stands there, contemplates what's in front of him. Um, that shot I lifted as a still and um, realised that I really liked that, not just from a compositional point of view, but um, I thought I could maybe develop that out into a full series. And uh, here I am, what, six or seven years later, with um, uh, the same guy having stood in 60 lochs, mountainside, yeah, obscure islands. Um, yeah, he's been everywhere, standing in all kinds of um, precarious uh, locations. <laughs> so, I guess just what is what are you what are you trying to communicate through through the series? Um, I mean, you, it has you know these obviously these big kind of huge vistas, and then you have kind of this mysterious figure in all the, all the pictures. So, what are you kind of getting after with all this? Um, yeah, the the lone figure in all those large locations, a sort of um, kind of sort of cinematic style landscapes where you had again um, ominous um, sort of Scottish landscape in all its uh, in all its uh, fearsome glory, um, yeah. sort of looming over this figure, um, and. The choice of those locations was quite important to the series. Um, in Scotland, it's quite an important time. Uh, next, in two years' time, 2014, we'll have our independence um, referendum, uh, which is where Scotland goes independent from the UK or not. So it's quite an important time. Um, and during this time, depictions of Scots and Scottish identity um, are really coming into you know, the, the media's attention. So we're getting a lot of pictures of people, you know, waving uh, the blue and white Scottish saltire or um, that old chestnut braveheart, which uh, like defines Scots around the world. But like a lot of Scots would not like to be defined by that. Uh, <laughs> so there's a certain visual language in Scotland, um, which you know, um, in America, no doubt you'll recognise big empty landscapes, uh, uh, Highland clans, and so on. And I wanted to. Uh, kind of subvert that imagery by making a very kitsch series of um, romantic images which are set in uh, locations with, with quite dark dark histories uh, places like Glencoe which is famous uh, to Scots really as um, the place where the Glencoe massacre occurred which is where a Scottish clan were murdered in their sleep um, by English soldiers or at least that's how it's told what really happened was it's Scots murdering other Scots um, something that has gone throughout Scottish history. Um, and another location I used, uh, Loch Nafola, which means a lot of Loch of Blood. Um, Grunard Island, 
which um, in the image, if you look at it, it looks like quite a peaceful, calm, serene image. You've got the heather in the foreground, uh, which is the most Scottish of plants next to the thistle. And um, you've got these mountains in the background, huge empty landscape, and Grunard Island, which is behind the figure. Now, Grunard Island um, is the place where they tested anthrax during the Second World War. Uh, it was only made um, safe for humans to visit there about 15 years ago. Wow. Um, if you looked at the picture and didn't scratch beneath the surface, you'd think, well, it's just a quite a nice, pretty landscape shot. But all of them have that link throughout, which is they have a kind of dark underlying story to them, or they're chosen for another reason, which is their locations, which have been quite important um, in depicting Scotland, you know, on biscuit tins or... Um, tea towels or, you know, postcards, just quite twee locations. Um, so the series really just plays with Scottish visual imagery and how we present ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, I thought of a question, which is, with does, does Scotland, like, do they actually use these locations often for are the tourist stuff? Like, And do they tell people what actually happened there, or do they just not ever mention it? Oh, no, no. Um, as Scottish, we are quite canny. Uh, we have visitor centres set, set up just for tourists, you know. Yeah. Um, so Glencoe, you can visit the Glencoe Visitor Centre, um, learn all about the massacre there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> some locations, uh, you know, um, say Culloden Field, which is, was um, the site of one of the last battles um, on British soil. Um, you know, you can learn all about that there. But some of them are kind of darker histories, Um some of the places I've visited up in the north of Scotland are from the Highland Clearances, which is where um, Scots were forced off the land um, by landlords um, and replaced by sheep. And the Scots obviously uh, emigrated to the US and Canada, uh, something similar which happened you know, in Ireland, for example. Um, so some of those histories are not really spoken about. Um, the anthrax thing is not really spoken about. Uh, and other locations, um, for example, Duncan's Behead, which is one of the images from the series, is where a trawler uh, called the George Robb uh, crashed up on the, the rocks, which are in the picture, and I think uh, six or seven men drowned. Um, so these kind of histories are not celebrated, but they're part of the kind of cultural, um, they're part of the fabric of Scotland, you know, but not all of them are as obvious as others. Yeah. Um... Yeah, which all this is really fascinating for me because I know when I was looking at your work that um, just your on your website, I guess I didn't I didn't get a sense of all that information of like the importance of the of the place. So I, I kind of wondered why you chose those places. Uh, so I was curious. I mean, I'm curious if you when you exhibit the work, if you talk about that more, or you just kind of let people try to figure it out on their own, or how that works. Well, when I first exhibited the work, I did speak about the origins of it. I mean, the, the lone figure in the landscape is drawn from romantic art and romanticism. And um, with the rise of nationalism in Scotland, uh, nationalism and romanticism sometimes go hand in hand. So I was happy to talk about the kind of artistic background of the series. I didn't really talk about the choice of locations as such. Um, one thing that I'm quite, or I was quite keen not to talk about is the intention of work because sometimes you don't want to you want people to figure out things for themselves or they you don't really want to direct someone to meaning 
Now, from a Scottish point of view, that's okay, because um, some people, well, people here will know about Glencoe, for example, but an audience in, say, Switzerland, for example, might not know the, you know, the subtext there. So I found that in a Scottish, um, exhibiting the work in Scotland, it was fine. A lot of people would get what it was about. But beyond that, people just kind of saw a figure in the landscape. But then I had some exhibitions where people didn't quite understand the work. And it was exhibited at the Scottish Parliament a few years ago um, in a solo show there, um, which was quite good. The work was well received by our uh, the Scottish um, members of Parliament. And it was actually congratulated in the parliamentary motion where they celebrated it as a depiction of Scotland, which is quite ironic because the sonnet series to me is the most un-Scottish of um, images you could perhaps view. It's very kitsch, it's very over the top, it's empty, it's um, vacuous, it's kind of the stuff you put on a, uh, a gingerbread, not gingerbread, like a shortbread tin or something like that, you know. Yeah. Uh, so they didn't quite get that. So to have the work congratulated by the Scottish Parliament is sort of ironic. Um, but in that same year, I was approached by the Scottish tourist body, Visit Scotland, who wanted to use uh, or made inquiries to use it as the face of Scottish tourism abroad. I just I thought that was yeah hilarious. I wrote yeah. Um, so sometimes even with a Scottish audience, the point was lost. So. Um, if you're too subtle and if you're the only one who's laughing at the joke, sometimes you feel, well, maybe I should kind of give the audience a bit more information on what I'm trying to achieve here, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, does that does that bother you when it's used in the opposite context of what you kind of were aiming for? Or do you just kind of laugh at it and think it's kind of funny? No, I mean, it's funny. Um, at the start, you know, I didn't, again, didn't tell people what it was about and... Um, the most interesting thing was people would come to me with narratives um, about what the series was about. And because you can't see um, Henning's face in the images, um, people would quite often write to me. And I've had all kinds of things. People have written haikus about the sonnet series. I've had a poem or two written about it. Uh, someone wrote a short story about why he was traveling across Scotland, standing in those locations. And mm. that, thing, that kind of thing is wonderful that people would engage with the work in that way. Um, but it kind of became more problematic. Um, I didn't mind people putting their own meanings on it, but to an extent, maybe it's ego talking. You still want um, you still want your own um, specific um, ideas to come across. You know, um, people can disagree with those and like the images just for images. But you know, I didn't. I don't want to be associated with um, work which. Clearly, I was trying to make something vacuous and something you put in a calendar, for example. I don't want people to think that that's the kind of photographer I am. So it kind of put me in a strange position where I didn't want to be known as the guy who makes postcard images. I wanted to be someone who was um, engaging with this whole history of visual imagery. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of photographers struggle with uh, that. Um, mm -hmm. the balance between communicating the point or com communicating whatever point you're trying to get at. Um, I'd agree with you. But um, also not like hitting people over the head where it's so obvious that they, they have no freedom to think outside of that. 
was that I noticed this recently with um, the Gursky work, which sold for a few million dollars, was mm-hmm. the uh, Rhine's House, mm-hmm. um, which is a constructed piece, really. Um, and as an image, a lot of people said it's mediocre, it's not interesting, it just doesn't work for me. Um, but with the the context, you know, how the image is put together and the intent, it's a, for me, it's a successful image. Um, and I've had these kind of arguments that, you know, should an image exist without text to make it, you know, um, should those two things be interlinked? Should an image stand alone without context? And with the sonnet stuff, a lot of it, I, I believe, a lot of those images, you know, you can view them and accept them on that basis. They work as images um, compositionally or, um, you know, from that point of view. But with the text, I think that elevates them to something a bit more interesting. Um, and I'm constantly having these debates with people now I'm doing a lot more kind of abstract stuff and they're not as easily readable as the sonnet images and that's where I'm uncovering a lot more problems with um, people who follow my work saying, you know, why, why don't you go back to something like that, which is more about symbolism, easier to read, more powerful imagery and less of this kind of strange, abstract, clothing landscapes you're working on now. You know? Yeah. No. Yeah, I understand that, that argument. I mean, it's tough because I think, um, you know, for example, if you're some sort of portrait photographer and you take a portrait of somebody that's a bit obscure, uh, maybe it's like a political figure or something to where you just looking at them, you would not know who they were. Yeah. Uh, and you don't inform the viewer of the importance of this person or why this portrait of this person matters and, you know, the context of like their history or something. Maybe it's controversial or whatever. Yeah. Uh, then you tend to you can miss the point. That's um, quite interesting. You pick up on a politician. Um, I'm actually doing a series just now on politicians, Scottish politicians, um, using collodion, and it is precisely because they are politicians. It's their social role and function that makes these collodion portraits um, more interesting for me because. Um, using collodion, which is UV light, it shows all the, um, let's say, imperfections of the human skin. Depends on how you how you want to phrase it, but it shows you know every wrinkle, every blemish. It shows politicians, um, shows them warts and all in this kind of uh, period of photoshopped imagery. Yeah. And um, for me, that's important. The intent of the work and knowing that they are politicians, you know, uh, people who hide behind you know, uh, public masks being stripped back, these quite brutal collodion portraits. Um, you need to know who these people are. So again, text and knowledge, you know, the images wouldn't perhaps work. I mean, they might be horrible portraits of politicians, uh, warts and all, but unless you know that um, they're being uh, publicly demasked um, and showing the truth themselves, then, you know, that you're losing a whole you're losing several layers of context there for the work. So, I mean, uh, quite important to me now that I need to be more direct with communicating my intentions to the viewer. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me a little bit of, um, I guess, what you're talking about there. We're getting off on some tangents now. <laughs> uh, but the uh, the Avedon portrait of like Marilyn Monroe where she's uh, mm. kind of looking down and kind of her her public mask is kind of off in a way 
Yeah. Um, what you're talking about with the politicians and, and, and showing maybe a bit of a reality of who they are and kind of stripping away that uh, the brand, personal brand or whatever that they often portray through perfected images kind of reminds me of that type of that type that type of imagery that Avedon had with Monroe and why I, that's like one of my favorite images. Mm. Um, like when the mask slips, you know, when you see the real person behind the persona, uh, those can be. You know some of the most powerful images. Um, like again, go back to another politician, um, um, the Scottish photographer um, Harry Benson took pictures during the Berlin Wall crisis of um, these powerful um, German politicians like Billy Brandt um, who are undergoing crisis. And he has all these pictures of them, you know, kind of slumped in chairs, looking miserable. And these are kind of the strong men of German politics in the sixties. And they're quite intimate pictures, you know, uh, like those pictures of the Kennedys as well, you know, uh, behind closed doors. Mm. Um, they're, they're more powerful because you can see the real people behind uh, behind the social persona, you know. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, okay, let's reel it back to like your sonnets <laughs> series. Um, talk a little bit more about, uh, I guess, Henning, which was from your website, is just a friend of yours? That's right, yeah. Um, when I first moved to the UK um, in '89, um, I um, sort of befriended a bunch of guys, and one of them was Mr. Henning. And uh, I've known him for about 20 odd years now, and uh, we're very close friends. And when I originally did the whole sonnets thing, I thought maybe I should do the model, but knowing someone who knows you, you know, almost as well as you know yourself. Um, gave us this sort of uh, working relationship where we could, you know, push each other harder um, than I could with a model, for example. Um, Henning's willing to, you know, he's willing to stand in sub-zero temperatures on, you know, uh, willing to walk across frozen Scottish wastelands with me um, for miles, um, kind of hike over mountains. And, I mean, because we have this relationship, um, where as friends, you know, we trust each other, um, I could push him a lot harder. And um, he's been sort of, he's been amazing uh, for the Sonnet series because um, I think that relationship we have um, is some interesting images. Yeah. What, I mean, what, why put a figure in there? Like, what, what role does he play for you in the images? I touched on earlier just that um, I was interested in romantic art. And a lot of romantic art, uh, 19th century, like um, art by Caspar David Friedrich, would have um, small figures in the landscape, and they'd be used as sort of, as sort of device um, to show, you know, the awe and the power and the majesty and the mystery um, of natural forces. So you'd have um, there's a famous painting called The Monk by the Sea, where you have a very very small figure in the foreground um, on a beach, and the rest of the image about um, three quarters of the image is this billowing, monstrous sky, and I, w I, want, I learned a lot from that um, from that series of images, and I wanted to achieve something similar. So I used a very German motif um, in Scottish landscapes, and Mr. Henning um, is the figure, and he sort of performs a similar role. He he adds a sense of mystery to the images. He he allows the viewer to place themselves within the landscape. He um, he performs a variety of roles, not just from a from a 
camera referencing uh, other imagery perspectives, but he also helps the viewer uh, be drawn into the images. Yeah. One of, one of the things I like about, I guess one of the things that I can maybe consider like successful art in a way is for me, at least I want to, if I own like a piece of work or, or anything that I like a book or whatever, I typically want to own work that is something that I can uh, look at multiple times yeah. and the meaning isn't exhausted after the first look. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Um, I think a lot of imagery that's being made today is almost like this kind of microwave thing where yeah. you want to try to communicate your point like right right off. Like if you can't communicate it in three seconds, then it's uh, it's considered maybe a bad image sometimes. Um, when I think sometimes it's really it's nice to have imagery that kind of lingers for a while. And so I think with Henning, like it's for me, like I could see him being a role of like he's you know, he could be, he could stand for just, like, humanity in some general way, or he could stand for, like, a visitor of Scotland from, like, the postcard perspective of, yeah. like, come come view our grand vistas. But um, but then knowing the history of some of these places that they're dark, like, he, he could also almost be, like, kind of a ghost of the past or something from there, <laughs> or just different things like that. I feel like there's, there's layers, which I think brings more success to the work than just, like, one context. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, he uh, he has a completely different view on the sonnet series than I do. Um, the sonnet series for me is um, it's sort of playing with visual imagery. It's uh, parodying a lot of things. It's trying to undermine certain views of Scotland. So for him, it's um, you know he he will walk out into those shots, uh, stand still, and he'll close his eyes and just take it all in because uh, Henning and I. Um, We've often been stuck in the car for two weeks, you know, traveling around to locations, have a lot of conversations, and um, I'm not particularly religious in my outlook. I see these as very, you know, they're not um, they're not images which have anything to do with um, paying homage to, you know, the majesty of God's creation. But um, for Henning, it's actually the opposite. He's a Church of Scotland elder. He's very involved with the religious community. And he sees them as sort of meditations on time and place and his own role within the landscape and Scotland. And, you know, just he sees them when he stands there with his eyes closed, he's communicating, uh, communing uh, with God and nature and so on. And I find that utterly fascinating. Um, mm. How completely the opposite of the way that I would uh, view the images, but for him, it's like a near religious experience. Um, I'm not sure if I have work with other models in future if they'll say that working with me is a new religious experience <laughs> <laughs> um certainly it's a bit different <laughs> yeah that is that is um it's very fascinating because it, okay i'm trying to think of a way to talk about this without um rambling um it's it's interesting because there's you and henning and you're sitting in front of like this landscape and you're staring at the exact same information, I guess, you know. Yeah. Uh, his perspective on it is completely different. Yeah. Uh, and yours is a different, is another way. Um, and it has nothing to do necessarily maybe with the landscape itself. It's just like your, what you bring to it, like yeah. your uh, beliefs or whatever. Um, 
and oh. how that relates to kind of what we talked about earlier with how people are reacting to your artwork, the Sonnet series, yeah. and how you can't really control that in a way. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You put, you put the work out there, and then people, you know, they will de deconstruct it or view it whatever way they want. But, I mean, when I stare out at the Vista, um, I mean, I research the locations before I go there, um, and I'm quite interested in the idea of topography and landscape. So, I mean, if I go to Loch Lomond, for example, I've already read up on how Loch Lomond was formed, you know, during the Ice Age and how deep, deep it is and, you know, um, how the landscape evolved over time and, um, you know, how it was formed from a geological point of view. I've researched, um, you know, the depths of water, for example, because he walks out into these locations and we've discovered in some places that if he walks a few more steps out, he's probably drowned. Uh, so uh, we've had some situations where he's ended up in the water or got stuck and I've had to go in and rescue him uh, I'm, not, I'm not joking I mean there's been some interesting times wow uh, but I mean I completely deconstruct that location before I get there well he has a more he arrives there and has um, an emotive response to it you know uh, while mine is perhaps more um, considered or slowed down yeah um Interesting. The looking at the body of work as a whole on the website, I noticed that you shoot like kind of horizontal, vertical, black and white, and color. You kind of flip between a lot of that. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious why you do that versus doing um, more limited range of like all horizontals or all black and white or all color or whatever. Um. Well, that's a lot of it's to do with the evolution um, of the series itself. Um, through. When I started the series, I had sort of clear aims of various locations I wanted to visit. And um, each location is different. Um, some locations, uh, for example, lie on the Bale's Craig, which is um, it's just off the coast from where I live, on the west coast of Scotland. It's a sort of a, it rises from the sea like a big shark fin, the, the remains of a volcano. Um, visiting a location like that, um, it's, it's quite dramatic. You've got sort of a thousand foot high sea cliff. And the only way you're going to get those in the shot successfully is by doing strong vertical compositions. Um, and a work like that, I had in mind um, a series of images by Bill Brandt, um, which were quite stark black and white works. Mm -hmm. I wanted to sort of um, sort of channel that. While another location, say Grunard Island, which I spoke about earlier, I wanted to have the brightness and color of um, the landscape, you know, the blues of the um, um, of the sea uh, with the sort of purples and oranges uh, and browns of the heather. So, I mean, each location has its own demands. But this idea, um, and I've been criticised for it previously, which I find quite interesting, um, that the series has this uh, variety uh, as a downfall, um, I find interesting. Um, there was a review a few years ago in a national newspaper called The Metro, which reviewed my first Sonnet's exhibition, which criticised me for not having the work in a consistent black and white format or in a consistent colour format. And I think it, I find it strange that in the photographic or in the critical community, you know, we can't have bodies of work which, you know, um, which straddle that and they work more on a location basis, for example, or, um, I mean, for me, the way I process an image or finish it is to that location, it's not overall in the series as a name. Um, 
I mean, the idea that I've shot, I've, I've shot the whole series in black and white or horizontal black and white landscapes, is, you know, it's not something I want to achieve. It's not something I think that does justice to the Scottish landscape, you know. And it's yeah. a strange one. Yeah. Um, also on your website, uh, it's very obvious that you shoot collodion. So how did you get started shooting that? That's quite funny, actually. It, I did an exhibition a few years ago um, in Glasgow uh, with a guy called Carl Radford, um, who taught myself and Deborah Parkin. Um, he's sort of one of the first people in the UK to sort of teach uh, workshops and so on. And um, I did that exhibition with him, and I saw the collodion stuff and went, yeah, it's interesting, but you've got to be kind of mad to do collodion kind of for the Sally Mans of this world, you know, or the chemists. And I'm not a very technical person, so I looked at the portraits they'd made and went, they're fantastic, but, you know, I'm not nuts. I'm not going to, you know, go out and <laughs> uh, mess around with chemicals. Um, and then one day I was out, um, it was a sort of winter's day a few years ago, and I was out in Glencoe, um, which is sort of a mountainous area in the north of Scotland. And um, I was trudging across the landscape with Henning, trying to set up a sonnet shot, but it was just too cold that day. The snow was too deep, and it was just too... The cameras were failing and, you know, it's quite bad, um, quite bad conditions. And uh, this sounds like a story, but it's true. Um, I saw this figure in the distance at the base of the mountain with a camera. And being a photographer, you want to talk to other photographers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I wandered over to him and uh, introduced myself. Um, said, oh, hi, I'm Alex. And he's asking what I was doing. And he said, oh, I know you and I know your work. I'm like, oh, great. I was like, what do you do? He says, oh, I do collodion. I'm like, all right. I know a guy called Carl Radford who does that. And uh, it was Carl Radford. <laughs> <laughs> and sort of, we met at the base of this mountain, uh, in a mountain pass in the snow. And it was kind of a strange location. So I just agreed. I come over to his uh, nice warm house and do a workshop. And from there, yeah, that's uh, where the love affair with collodion really began. Um, a, a windy <laughs> so. <laughs> sounds, sounds like destiny or yeah whatever it does, yeah it does it does have that really <laughs> yeah that's that's funny um since because you've shot digital and you've shot collodion i mean what's the biggest lesson you've learned from shooting collodion that you don't get from shooting digital um well i don't have anything against digital i mean it's a great tool um depends what you want to achieve. I did find with sonnets that I was increasingly slowing down and um, my sort of, I began photography shooting um, concerts really, doing local bands and then sort of rock acts and like Smashing Pumpkins and all that sort of thing where you'd shoot, you know, 100 frames in 10 minutes or even more than that. Um, and gradually as I got older and uh, I, I sort of slowed down in my approach and became more considered. And the last few shots I did sonnets, you know, I'd turn up and only do two or three shots in one location. And this kind of slowing down sort of fitted perfectly with collodion because it's incredibly slow. Um, and it's quite measured and I sort of, I felt that collodion fitted me more um, from, a, from the way I produce images point of view than digital. Um, so it kind of corresponded quite well with what I wanted to achieve at that time. Um, so. I find myself now um, only producing maybe a few images a day when I'm doing it, as opposed to many. So clothing's sort of perfect for that. Mm. 
talk a little bit about, I mean, because I've never shot uh, Collodion, and so I just don't have any experience with it, but um, just how, like, laborious it is uh, to do it. I mean, I don't I don't know if you've seen, there's, um, I guess there's the guy, he's on the west coast of the United States, it was kind of, there's a video floating around in Vimeo earlier this year called Silver and Light, and he was, like, doing these huge wet plate prints out of, like, a band. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. and he would ruin them, and it'd be like five hundred dollars a plate, or something crazy. Um, but I, yeah, talk about just the whole process of that. Yeah, I find clothing endlessly fascinating. I mean, it's 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 come into vogue in a big way in the last few years. There's hundreds, if not you know, as much as a thousand people doing it um, across the world at the moment, and um, people like Ian Ritter or Rutter. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce his name. Um, we're sort of at the forefront of that. Mm. Um, it's uh, it's no process invented 1851 by Frederick Scott Archer, and it uh, uses various chemicals, uh, collodion and silver nitrate, for example, to make images. So you sort of make your own film in the dark and then process it yourself, and you've only got 10 or 15 minutes to make the image. It's, it's quite hands-on, and that's you kind of feel like you're crafting an image in your hands. Um, which is sort of the joy of it. Um, that's sort of the main plus of it. But it's as as a process, um, it fits me for landscape because that's sort of my my mental approach. It's quite slowed down, and um, I like the challenge of it. But it's uh, for things like studio portraits, it's very very straightforward. Um, Claudine, the major thing about it is. Um, people try to build up a mystery around it, but it's difficult. But um, I don't think Studio Collodion's that that difficult at all. Really, it's uh, fairly straightforward. It's it's kind of been overdone a wee bit at the moment. So I've kind of I have a love and hate affair with Collodion. <laughs> but um, I think in landscape, that's sort of the more interesting thing. Um, don't get me wrong. There's people like Deborah Parkin who produce some fantastic um, work, um, portrait work, because she's doing it. You know, she's got a concept that she's working to and she's got a certain take on it. But I've just seen the same sort of shots over and over again. Um, and people pass it off as art because they're using a process. But, yeah. I, you know, you understand it's not that, um, and I don't find it that challenging. But landscape is completely different because you need to drag all that gear out with you up and down hills, you know. Um, if I give an example, as in Ireland, at the beginning of the year making images and you know, your setup time is, well, I was working in, in an old World War II bunker on a cliff edge, and it took me two hours to set up because you need to drag all the equipment a mile up a hill. Gosh. Um, I was using an old, um, an old trolley they used to transport coal on, and I was dragging all this gear up like a, a cliff, not directly up a cliff, but up a, up a, up a hill to get to this location, and it's back-breaking work. Take your chemical, your cameras, your dark box, you know, your water. Um, I mean, I spent that day like five hours setting up and taking down and then two hours making shots um, in like really wild conditions. So you've got to be really committed. Um, I mean, that day alone I had a snowstorm, beautiful sunny weather, you know, <laughs> rain. Uh, <laughs> you're kind of out and you're on the edge of a cliff, which is hundreds of feet high. So... You know, there's probably something wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do there. But, uh, I find yeah. that so, so challenging. So. 
like when you're doing landscape like that, I mean, you have to develop you develop it on site, right? So do you have to take and like build like a dark room like on the side of a hill? Yeah, um, I've got a it's called a dark box. Um, you can use a tent, which is quite lightweight, but I work on the sort of west coast of Scotland and Ireland, where a tent would get blown away because the, the winds here are very, very severe. So I need to take a large wooden box with me that I work within, and it's solid and it's heavy, and it's not going to get shaken around by the wind too much. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I need to take this dark box with me, and you've got about 10, 15 minutes to uh, pour the collodion on a piece of tin or glass, um, make that into film by putting it into silver nitrate, um, making the picture and then developing it on 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 location. And um, you know you've got to do all this. Um, and in my case, it was with very red, cold hands. You know, so you need to have a mental determination to see it through to the end. You know, it's really um, it's made me kind of I think stronger making this kind of imagery. And I wanted to sort of test myself that I could get out in the morning, get out of bed in the morning, knowing that I've got a hell of a day ahead of me, you know, uh, just to make four or five images, you know, so um, it's, to me, it's a personal challenge and it's something that, you know, I think it's made me stronger as a photographer. If I go back to digital or film, for example, I think hopefully, it'll, you know, I'll have learned a lot from it. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, when I was looking at your website, I was thinking um, about how much work you put in. Um, you know, I mean, because your what Sonnet series was like, what, six, seven years or something? Yeah. Correct? Um, and well, then you're, like, hiking. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how long it takes to get to those places, but it looks like it would take forever. Um, and then doing Collodion, I know, is expensive and just very laborious so just curious of like what really was drives you to work that way because it seems like you're kind of uh <laughs> i don't know you get energized from the, the challenge of it at all, at all or something i think it's um well sauna took so many years because um i was sort of working um at the same time and studying i probably could have done it you know in a year <laughs> if I'd had the, the money and resources, but just the way that life is, you know, the realities of being a photographer. Yeah. You, know, you, you need other jobs sometimes to help pay uh, for the, the stuff you enjoy. Um, but my kind of uh, sadomasochistic approach to photography, um, <laughs> I'd say a lot of it's to do with the way I was brought up. Um, my father uh, was a soldier, a very focused individual, uh, as was his father and his father. Mm. Uh, my brother is a, or was until recently, a Royal Marine Commando. So I come from a family of quite um, driven men, um, quite focused. And the way I was brought up was always to kind of see things through to the end. So um, I always felt that I had this drive to, to do something more, to do something more kind of challenging. And some people think it's like I'm in competition with others, but the only person I'm really in competition with is myself that I can do these things. So I set up these kind of grand projects and then uh, throw myself into them um, as much as I possibly can and see what I can achieve. And the fact, you know, I, I was doing that to me was a big, I mean, I was exhausted by the end of that residency in Ireland, but I felt I achieved something from a, you know, from a personal point of view um, as well as sort of an artistic perspective on it. Yeah, there's... 
I kind of have this weird, uh, I don't know if it's weird, but I have this belief a bit that, like, I don't know, it's kind of a common thread, I guess, I see through just, like, photo history um, that you s the most successful work or the most successful photographers I see, uh, they tend to approach photography from the perspective of they're using it as almost as a vehicle to kind of improve they improve who they are as a, as a person or to discover their self as a person. It's like a process. Yeah. Do you think that's true? No, I think that's very, very much. Um, I think like a lot of photographers, you know, you have moments where you you have a lot of self-doubt and you, you aren't quite sure what you're trying to achieve as an individual and, you know, what your kind of goals are. Um, with me, I was quite inspired by a photographer, an American photographer called Thomas Joshua Cooper. Um, he... He travels to the most extreme points on Earth, um, such as I guess the South Pole, and you know the, the furthest point north that you could go, you know, um, on the U.S. mainland. And he, he goes there with a camera and makes one shot, you know, at these extreme places, um, the most extreme of locations, to prove to himself, you know, as much as anything uh, that he can get there. You know, and he's someone. He actually lives in Glasgow. And now he's kind of an adventurer as well as a photographer. And I think like a lot of photographers, we're all just trying to prove something, you know, to ourselves and not just our audiences, um, but what we can achieve. And I think sometimes it can be quite hard because if you're quite driven as an individual, um, you know, uh, people can mistake that sometimes for arrogance when you're just sort of trying to, um, trying to achieve a personal goal, you know, and you'll do anything to get there, you know. You, yeah. You can be quite selfish in that respect, where you just want to kind of make these things happen. And I've, I've met a lot of photographers who are like that, you know, or artists, and, and they're just so committed to this, and, and, you know, that it kind of takes over their life. And it kind of becomes hard where, you know, I do these grand personal projects where it doesn't kind of infringe on, upon, you know, my normal life, as it were. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, do you have, like, a, a family and all that, or...? Yeah, um, I I'm married. I've got a wife. Um, she's a, she's an art historian actually. She's nice. Uh, she's doing a doctorate just now, but she lives in Japan at the moment. Wow. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> she, she spent she spent about six months in Japan, which is um, it's, 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 it can be difficult at times. Um, but in our marriage, uh, we're both again very driven individuals, and we spent half our marriage living in different countries. She's been off doing you know. Uh, she moved down. We got married, and she moved to, to London for a year uh, straight after to do, you know, a masters. And um, as people were quite used to, you know, living in other places, so it's kind of it's been good in that respect because I'm with someone who understands that, you know, if you want to achieve something, you've got to make sacrifices. Um, and we both push each other forward. Um, and my family, we've I've lived all over the place. You know, they live all over the place. So I've been kind of brought up in this. Um, of transient, uh, goal-orientated life, I suppose. Yeah. You know? So that that's been quite helpful. With that, so and the support is the most important thing as well. You know. Mm -hmm. So how did you meet Deborah Parkin? Ah, okay. Uh, how did I meet Deborah? Um, I sort of learned through Deborah. Um, learned about Deborah through um, Carl Radford, who taught her one of the website courses. And um, really just kind of fell in love with her work. And, uh, you know, we got in contact and 
uh, we've become really good friends since then. Uh, I've gone down to visit her a few times. She's been up here, and uh, we've both kind of seen see eye to eye in a lot of things. Um, Deborah's very grounded and a very very driven individual as well. I mean, I think what she's doing with Collodian is um, you know, it's, it's up there with you know some of the best work which has been produced. And um, as a as a person, I really get on with her because we don't tolerate fools really. You know, we just kind of. Photography is not the only thing in our lives. We, you know, Deborah's thing is her family, which you can get through her pictures. Um, and if you took the photographer away from it, you know, she'd still have that, and I still have my, my life. And we've, we've both had these same kind of, um, same kind of interests. Can I actually start this question again? I've kind of gone off on a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. So, yeah, just, yeah, just talk about, yeah, Deborah and how you met her. Um, yeah, I learned about Deborah Parkin, um, first of all, through Carl Radcliffe, who taught her on one of the website courses. And I, I got in contact with her subsequently, found out we we have a lot of sort of shared interests, and we ended up meeting up, chatting, and we visited each other a few times. And yeah, we've just become really good friends. She's, she's really driven in her work, and she has a vision, which I think is exceptional. Uh, the way she puts images together, and I mean, even this morning, she uploaded a new picture of her daughter Fleur, which is inspired by a catfish. And like, I don't think there's a photographer out there really where every single picture they put up, I go, you know, wow. So she's quite inspiring. Um, she's been a really good friend. Um, we both um, constantly have our own creative struggles, and knowing that there's someone there I can chat to, and she feels the same way. We, it's been, it's been a really good friendship. Just get work out there. And, know that there's someone out there who's also struggling with uh, clothing and its many uh, intricacies. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine that, um, I mean, I think anytime you have kind of uh, a friend that you can bounce ideas off of or get kind of critiques from that knows your process and what you're trying to achieve helps uh, versus putting stuff online and trying to get feedback. Well, that's um, the thing. Because she knows the clothing process inside out, uh, she understands where the work's coming from and you know what you're trying to achieve. I think the problem with a lot of clothing um, from viewers is they can't see past the process. Mm. They can just see sort of pretty um, mess-ups and uh, anomalies on it, um, as opposed to the image you know, itself. And uh, I think Deborah and I, because we've been working on it for so long now, that, um, we can see past that just talk about what we're trying to achieve, not just, you know, um, some of the more odd things which happen with that process. You know. Yeah. I noticed on your site that you have, you you do some talks, mm-hmm. and you have a talk right now, I guess, that you're doing called The Discovery of Slowness. Uh, what is that about? Yeah, um, The Discovery of Slowness, um, that's based from um, a book title, actually, which is uh, the Endecum, which uh, translates as Discovery of Slowness. Um, it's a book by an author um, called Sven Madolny, uh, which came out in 1983, I think. And it's about this Arctic explorer uh, called John Franklin. And he's a sort of man out of time. He, he lives much slower than other people. You know, he can sit there and stare at a church clock all day long and wonder the intricacies of that, how that works. And he... He became a polar explorer, and he has a very internalized world, very slowed down world, 
more considered world and um, I found um, as I got older I've kind of slowed down a lot and um, learned to consider my subject matter and um, I kind of saw par parallels there uh, with this character. So my talk is sort of, um, I've been traveling around Scotland and going to museums and societies and talking about the closing process and what, what I'm trying to achieve with it, what others have tried to achieve with it and to show people, you know, take some of the magic and mystery, uh, kind of uh, go behind the, the magicians, um, just to show what happens, how it works and kind of, um, kind of share some of the secrets of Collodion I suppose. Um, and it's been quite good fun. I've, I've had a great time sort of teaching all over the country and uh, the audience seems to love seeing, you know, when the image appears uh, in the bath, once you've developed it, and, you know, it's been, it's been quite good fun. There's a photographer here in Nashville. He, I think there's, I don't know, there's only one guy I know locally, I think, that does some wet plate stuff. Um, maybe his, his name is Mark Tucker. I don't know if you've heard of him, but. Yeah, I've Mark Tucker. Okay. work. Yeah. Uh, he, I think he picked it up a couple of years ago um, and started messing around with it. But, I mean, how? what's your advice on um, getting started with Collodion? You know, maybe if somebody comes to you and is, like, wanting to kind of try it out, because it seems like it's, uh, I don't know, well, a tricky thing to maybe get started. It's not, there's not as many options available with it as other things. Well, you know, um, I think it's fairly expensive for me to start up. Um, just because I bought the old camera and all that kind of thing. But, you know, you don't need the expensive equipment to do it. Um, you can make collodion images in a pinhole camera, you know, an old box brownie. And um, the chemicals, well, they're not that expensive. You know, it's um, the cost thing isn't the major thing here. It's more about commitment to what you're doing. Um, I think it's good for people to get out there and try it. Um, you know, go to a workshop, learn about it, give it a go, you know, uh, see, see if it works for you. But, um, I think if you're trying to say something or do something, you really need to commit to work with Collodion's qualities to produce work which is interesting. Um, you've got to ask yourself why you're doing it. Um, as I said before, a lot of people just make Collodion portraits, and you know that's fine. Um, I don't consider a lot of that art, uh, to be honest, just because the intention isn't really there. It's just people use the process to make a picture. It's kind of like. Um, mm. A terrible article recently which compares um, Sally Mann's work to sort of uh, Instagram. Um, yeah. Oh, it was slightly unfair, but, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I think you need an intention there. So if people are going to do it, they need to commit to it and they need to see how that fits with their their vision as a photographer. You know? Yeah. Um, kind of as we wrap up here, I would love to talk about maybe where you're headed now because it seems like your sonnet series is kind of for the most part come to kind of a conclusion so what what's kind of next for you uh, i'm actually i'm the next thing on the horizon is i'm coming over to america for about a month or so and i'll be traveling from la to san francisco to colorado up to um maybe even the south as well um, and then up to new york and so on to meet the people who have been instrumental in bringing back clothing Quinn uh, Jacobson or uh, Mark Osterman, that sort of thing. Um, people who really, in the last 20 years, have kind of been spearheading that. I'm going there to sort of learn from these people um, about their take on it, because I kind of see them as the artists who are pushing it forward. Um, and when I return to the UK, I'll, 
I'll be starting up a residency in Sky for six months, where I'll be working with the local community and making Colonial portraits. Um, I'm doing that project with the Scottish Government. Um, I'm working on Pinhole and teaching, um, and I'm hopefully going to get up to Norway and Iceland in 2013 to do some work there. So, yeah, there's, there's enough to be getting on with, really. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I like to keep myself very busy. Yeah. I don't see how you sit outside in the cold and do all that. <laughs> <laughs> I would freeze. I'm like a limp. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up in Scotland, um, I mean, it's freezing right now, so, you know, yeah. I think they just make us a bit more you know, hardy. Yeah. Um, ran- random question at the end. I mean, like, I know you've been shooting, you've mentioned you're shooting in some really cold situations, you know, and, like, you've had to put Henning out there, but he's wearing, like, not a lot. Yes. So has there been any type of ever danger with him getting, like, too cold or anything like that? Yeah. Um, we went over to Sweden and um, we were working on the side of a, a lake there, a place called Alamza, and it was like minus, I don't know what it was, minus 12 or something, maybe more than that, talking in degrees, uh, see here. Yeah. And um, the, the lake was frozen over, and he walked over it, and you know we did the shot, but when it came back quite violently uh, cold, so we had you know the thermals and the hot coffee and all that, and it's been a while just bringing him back up to normal temperature. Um, luckily, I had sort of a team of people there at that time, friends and so on, who could help out. But um, I kind of learned from then on to give them a thermal vest if it's too cold, instead of just a shirt and braces. Right. And, uh, I mean, he's, uh, it's normally me who actually gets into more trouble. You can't believe how many cameras I've trashed by mistake or flashes. or uh, I mean, it's me that uh, has fallen down. Uh, when I was in Ireland there, I managed to fall down a, an embankment and put myself in a bed for about two days um, yeah. and almost fell off a cliff edge. Um, he's generally better taken care of than I take care of myself. <laughs> yeah, if you work for me, there's no health plan. Uh, yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, Alex, thanks so much for taking the time. I really uh, appreciate it and love what you guys are, you know, doing over there. Uh, you know, you in the UK, you guys got some talented shooters and i definitely think you're one of them so i really appreciate it talking to me that's been great thank you very much for uh, having me it's been fantastic <laughs>